the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, philosophers rethink metaphorical distinctions as very happy alien sunbeams, known as blies, found to be actual metaphysical darkness closed in light, and shadows actually pools of dead and decomposing blies rather than the absence of light as previously thought. Wow, looks like cloudy days are the only island of stability in a universe gone topsy-turvy, so wear a hat out there, people. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman, who talks about his great new military science fiction novel, A Pillar of Fire by Night. This is the latest entry in Tom's long-running Carrera series, and boy, is it action-packed. Tom will tell us more about that shortly. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high-fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. Look, riding through the night delivering to all the good little boys and girls who are literate enough to appreciate them and have a Santa with a good sense to get them and give them, it's the December Bain Mass Market paperbacks. Out now is Iron Angels by Eric Flint and Alistair Kimball. A bizarre kidnapping case leads FBI Special Agent Jasper Wilde into the mysterious world of a strange religious cult and even stranger criminals. At the scene of the kidnapping itself, a frightening apparition is seen. Then a hideously mutilated corpse is found nearby. Something wicked has come to the normal-seeming Chicago suburbs. Also out in December is an all-new anthology. Hey, this one has got a story by me, yours truly, in it that originally appeared in Asimov's magazine back in the day. The story's called In From the Commons, by the way. The anthology is called Space Pioneers. It's edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Final Frontiers, an anthology of stories from classic and contemporary masters that explores the wide-open frontier that may await humanity when we take to the stars. Hey, your future is in space. Since the dawn of time, humankind has felt the urge to explore the four corners of our globe, to push at the boundaries of our world and discover what lies over the horizon. The Great Tales of Space Exploration by David Drake. I think we got a Larry Niven, a James Gunn, Sarah Hoyt. Theodore Sturgeon, Edmund Hamilton, and more. Finally out in mass market paperback in December is The Magnificent Wilf by Gordon R. Dixon. We are not alone in the galaxy, not by a long shot, and extrasolar civilization has come calling. Now Tom Parent, his linguist wife Lucy, and their great Dane Rex must travel the stars as ambassadors of Earth. Their mission, to prove humanity deserves to be considered equal to the scores of established alien cultures out there. The Magnificent Wilt by Gordon R. Dixon, Space Pioneers, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio, and Iron Angels by Eric Flint and Alistair Kemble are now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with Tom Kratman discussing A Pillar of Fire by Night. 
Part 2 will be available on next week's podcast. I want to welcome Tom Crapman back to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tony. In 1974, at age 17, Tom Crapman became a political refugee and defector from the PRM, the People's Republic of Massachusetts. We've talked about your background a little before. By virtue of joining the regular army, um, you were a uh, history-reading teenager, as I recall from our previous conversations. Um, Pretty much, yes. Um, There's actually a funny story there. Um, I I was self-taught, sort of self-taught, to read um, before I turned three. What it was was I had a whole bunch of kids' books, 126 of them, as a matter of fact. And my my mother and my grandmother and my aunts would take turns reading these stories to the point where I had every one of them memorized. It was a very quick jump from memorizing the kids' books to identifying what, you know, okay, that has to mean D. And that that means a little stop when they're finished with this, this one thought here. So anyway, Mother took me down to the uh, library in South Boston to get a, um, a library card. And I picked out some books for myself, and none of them were from the kids' section, and the librarian didn't want to let me have any of the books. She said I couldn't read them. My mother insisted that I could. Um so she tested me on a book called The Battle of Midway. I don't remember who, there's a lot of books called The Battle of Midway. I don't remember who wrote that one. Um, and I wish I had a copy still, but in any case, I passed the test. So I was the only two-and-a-half-year-old in South Boston with an adult life. <laughs> wow. Why is it that that so many of us uh, who were readers as youth have, have, we have great librarian stories, and we have that one librarian who didn't want us to read something? Stories. Stories as well. Yeah, well, in her case, she she was probably following orders, you know, because yeah. she gave me the she gave me the card when I demonstrated I could read the freaking book. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you did learn to read very early, and uh, later joined the army. Not at the age of three, but uh, uh, seventeen. Uh, actually, I, I didn't join the army, but I was in patrol when I was 14 and I was school at about the same age so uh, and boys well you uh, you stayed in after the Gulf you went you were uh, joined the regular army you stayed regular army infantryman most of uh, your adult life returning to Massachusetts as an unofficial dissident while attending Boston College after uh, after the first hitch, back in the Army, Tom managed to do just about everything there was to do at one time or another. After the Gulf War, and with the bottom dropping completely out of the anti-communist market, uh, some, some of that has returned, <laughs> Tom decided to become a lawyer. And every now and again, when the frustrations of legal life and having to deal with other lawyers got to be too much, Tom rejoined the Army, um, or a somewhat similar group for fun and frolic and other climbs. Um, you are no longer practicing law, I don't think. Um, well, uh, it's horrible. And, uh, I, I don't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> As a matter of fact, our, our firm had a, a program going where we would take in interns from students at Virginia Tech who thought they wanted to be lawyers and did work with us for maybe a month or six weeks or two. And we'd convince them they didn't want to do any such thing. Mostly, we were successful. 
But uh, you were also a uh, I mean, you were a long time uh, uh, officer in the army. You were uh, uh, I believe you retired a lieutenant colonel, correct? Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, um, Tom is the author of a State of Disobedience, Caliphate, A Desert Called Peace. I like that book. Carnifex, the Lotus Eaters, the Amazon Legion, come and take them. The Rods and the Axe, these are part of the Carrera series, as well as three collaborations with John Ringo, Watch on the Rhine, Yellow Eyes, and the Deloriad. Also, uh, the three volumes in the Modern Day Military Fiction Countdown series. And now at Booksellers Everywhere is A Pillar of Fire by Night, a, an extremely cool title, by the way. This is the latest entry in the Carrera series and a direct sequel, I believe, to The Rods and the Axe. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so, what uh, what is uh, what is this place anyhow? This this Terra Nova that um, that the Carrera books take place on. Um, you give a pretty good summation of it at the beginning of of, of a Pillar of Fire by Night. I um. Well, it, the planet hasn't much changed, really, since I started the series. Um, basically what it is, and, and I'm surprised the number of people who never picked this up, is that it's either an animal sanctuary or game preserve set up by some aliens that we don't know much of anything about. We found a couple of otherwise inexplicable on this other planet, a couple of otherwise inexplicable um, artifacts. We have no clue what the purpose of it is. And the planet is full of animal life that went extinct, between a half a million and about at least five million years ago, maybe longer. There are no dinosaurs there. There are some sharks that are bigger than most dinosaurs. Yep. You got a, you got a Meg. <laughs> yep, there's Megs there. Um, but they think they're going extinct because there just isn't enough for them to eat. Um, but they're meaner than weasel crap uh, where, where they do show up. And anyway, the planet... They, they try to colonize it with a very politically correct, multiculturally sensitive, top-to-bottom, integrated, highly educated, um, hand-select group, which on the long voyage broke into civil war on racial, uh, racial, ethnic, and religious grounds, <laughs> basically destroyed the ship and most of themselves, and a relatively small number of the, uh, the passengers and crew escaped to the planet, where they were found a few years later. Um, the planet, because it's, this is actually kind of funny. People think it was, oh, it was just lazy or I was be, I was either being lazy or I was being clever and making the planet look like earth, which it does. Nah. When I was writing the first series, I was snippeting it and someone sent me an article. I think the title was, we're all Panamanians now, which, um, had a meaning he didn't really in- anticipate when I read it. All these animals need a certain kind of weather to prosper. And the only way to get the same kind of weather is to make the same kind of surface to the planet. Mm. So the uh, the knowers, those aliens, basically restructured the planet to make it Earth-like so that the animals could prosper. So there's a really good explanation for why it, uh, it, it even has fairly similar uh, geography, right? Right, fairly similar. Uh, it's actually quite close. Um, there, there are minor, you know, I figure that the aliens probably know things we don't, and they're not going to work harder than they must. So there are some minor differences in there. Um, there is no Australia, for example. Uh, 
not at all. Uh, so uh, anyway, the, the first uh, attempt at colonization having been a miserable failure, as oh, one would expect out of the UN, really. Um, they uh, set up an authority to subdivide the planet, and they did it on geographic lines. Except, again, there is no Australia. So Australia was the one country punished with not having its own area on the new planet, and the reason they were punished is they're too faithful an ally of the United States, which was too powerful still not to be given its own area. Uh, and so the, uh, the, area, the, the planet was, uh, was divided up, and colony, colonists were sent out in groups in such a way that they would not end up at war with each other, um, even immediately after they were placed on the ground, because they, they go mostly in suspended animation. Well, that didn't work. Ultimately, <laughs> well, they didn't end up as a, as a single um, unified planet, and and in fact, one of my motives behind uh, behind writing the book was to demonstrate that the fairly typical sci-fi trope of a monocultural planet is extremely unlikely. Even if we manage to travel faster than light, we do get other planets. Um, somebody's going to find the planet, you know. The planet's going to get parceled up, just like Africa was parceled up by European uh, imperialists. So we're talking about the geography of uh, of Terra Nova. What about the the history um, as far as the books go? Our guy, our main character, is uh, he starts out as a he's not a native to Balboa, the uh, little nation state where a lot of the action takes place, right? Married beautiful girl, uh, had kids, and they moved down there after he retired. He's, he's actually from a moneyed family, but he's not getting any money from them. And then something terrible happened. Right. Wife and kids killed in a, um, in a terrorist incident, highly reminiscent, but not exactly like uh, 911. Yeah. And this, uh, this, this set, uh, set him off. Uh, what's his name? Patrick, uh, what's his last name again? I'm spacing on it. Hennessy. Um, it, he needs to become Carrera, uh, and Carrera is, is both an identity and, and sort of a, a larger-than-life being that he sort of morphs into because of all the stuff that he has to go through, right? Well, well the name is his wife's maiden name, and mm-hmm. she's ended from the guy who led the revolution in Balboa against the U.N. several hundred years, about 400 years prior. Um, I mean, hell, a good chunk of the country is descended, but she still has the name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he adopts the name partly so people will know just who's getting revenge, why, and partly because the the name carries a lot of uh, clout on its own in Balboa. So give us a, can you give us a, I don't know, a, a, a short uh, tour of the history that, that takes us up to a pillar of fire by night, as far as Carrera is concerned. Yeah, it'd probably be pretty short. I'll miss 99, 44100s percent of the details. Um, but uh, his wife is killed. He goes up to where she's killed, kind of fruitlessly, um, looking for some trace of the body. It's not just her, it's, it's her and the kids, too. They jump from a burning building. Yeah, where have we seen that before? Uh, when he comes back to Balboa, 
he um, he's armed. He's got an arm. His brother-in-law picks him up, and he's got a pistol in the car. And he sees some of the local um, Muslim folk um, ra- having a rally in support of the the incident that killed his wife and kids. So he um, he insults several of them into assaulting him, shoots most of them. Uh, I think he shoots four of them, and then he pistol whips the other one to death. Um, then he co- he puts down his gun and he's he waits for the police to show up. The the, the local cop is former military, and they'd been friends for a long time, even when they were in the different armies. Um, and the, the the cop shows up, looks at this guy with his his skull totally misshapen from being pistol whipped with a forty five, and uh, his friend says, an obvious case of self-defense, let the gringo go. Because <laughs> um, that's just how Latin America tends to Yeah. Um, well, so you know, I guess. The uh, from there, it turns out that his uncle left a, a holographic video w- videoed will. His wife was visiting his uncle, from whom he was estranged. Uh, his uncle left a holographic videoed will, leaving everything to um, to Hennessy at that time, uh, with the express instructions to get even. They're, they're just that kind of a clan. Uh, not enough. For for him to to build an army to get you know big enough to get even on his own, but it's enough for him to build a small brigade that he can rent to the Federated States, which is where the terrorist attack took place. Not United States, Federated States, and their history is a little different. Um, the uh, so he does. He, he he builds a brigade, and uh, he's got a family senator who's highly reminiscent of Hillary Rodham Clinton in terms of her complete corruption. And uh, she sort of helps him get hired. And he goes over there and he fights. Um, and you know, it, he's not really fighting because he's any he's got any great interest in the area they're fighting over um, or the cause for which he's fighting. He simply needs more money for a bigger army. Um, and he ends up getting along very well with uh, one of the uh, the enemy who, who fought him well, uh, and well, honorably, and in accordance with the laws of war. And so he sort of hires that guy and his troops, um, helps him, uh, helps this guy become president of Sumer, and basically acquires a pretty good ally. The, the guy he's hired also turns over to him the nuclear weapons that he was guarding that, of course, all everybody lefty on this planet insists never existed. But they existed, seven of them. They come in later on. Okay, he, he fights there, and, and it's that, that whole section is a fairly good exercise, uh, intellectual exercise in conducting counterinsurgency of a particular type. And it's, it's particularly poignant because, oh, he's changed his name to Carrera by now. It's particularly important because Carrera is running both sides of the insurgency. It, sort of. Uh, he's got his own counterinsurgency force, and it's it's been raising, and it's about divisional-sized in-country and much larger than that, training up to come over in a rotational scheme. Um, and there is an, a, an insurgent enemy, but he is also running an insurgent an insurgency of his own against the insurgent enemy and pinning the blame on them by and large. 
he does some interesting things to curb left-wing uh, enthusiasm for supporting terrorists. Like there's a, and I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that that um, that German woman, uh, Susanna Osthoff, maybe was her name. She shows up in the book as Susanna Vestplatz. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that she volunteered to be kidnapped so that the West German government, which is basically ballless, would pay for her to be released so that the terrorists would have money to continue their uh, their work. She was also an Islamic convert. Revert, excuse me, she was a revert. And another one, uh, Juliana Macera, who is based on Juliana Segrena, Julia Segrena, rather, um, who is uh, fed feet first into a wood chipper after taking a really bad flogging after she volunteered to be a hostage to raise money for the terrorists. No doubt in my, my mind that both of those women were working for the enemy. And we should have killed them. Well, Carrera arranged them to be killed as a lesson to anybody else who would try. Particularly in this area of the country. Carrera does this sort of thing a lot. He is the he's the guy that will go to the links that are necessary. Oh, he's got he's um he wasn't that bad before his wife and kids were killed. He was a bit of a nut, um, although he hit it pretty well. And she was the only one who could restrain his baser impulses. Cue her hands to the death. To her deaths and their, their kids' deaths at the hands of Islamic terrorists. Suddenly, this guy who's not too tightly wrapped to begin with, although he's very competent, um, has nobody controlling him anymore. His his leash is gone. They killed it. They cut it. Um, so they they brought their own really they brought their own doom upon themselves, even though they didn't know it. Uh, so he fights in Sumer. Um, that war is won rather more because he's controlling both insurgencies and he arranges for the new president to uh, get elected there. Um, that insurgency, unlike in Iraq, is basically won. And he, he doesn't try any any of our feel-good bullshit either. You know, he's, he's much more realistic than that. And he is fired um, and then rehired by the Federated States to go to Pashtia, which is a, a different country. Um, and you know, somewhat analogous to Afghanistan, certainly in its terrain and to some extent ethnically. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, by the way, about, and, and if you ask me later on, I'll tell you, there are about six different ways to read the book. Um, I, I wrote it to be read in any of six different ways. Um, that is, maybe I should ask you now, that is... Um, either allegorically or not, or what do you mean by that? You can read it as a criticism of a bunch of science fictional tropes, like the monocultural planet. Um, well, that's actually a biggie. Uh, the uh, the relative uh, political commentary on the relative wisdom of uh, all kinds of politically correct multiculturalism Multiculturally sensitive, postmodernist, with it, you know, hip memes and vibes we've got going now across the world. You can read it as a romance, because, you know, after all, is there anything more romantic than a guy waging a private world war to avenge the death of his woman? Um, you can read it as the series, I mean. You can read it as an instructional manual, because I started out intending that be a how to manual for every kind of war under the sun. 
in every aspect of it. So there are aspects of organization, administration, leadership, award systems, logistics systems, research development, uh, techniques, tactics, operations, strategy. Um, basically, it's massively in there. Uh, and I didn't do it with any uh, Ayn Rand-esque long speeches. It's all stuff you have to read and think about. And it's told from different points of view. It, it's told from different points of view as well. It's told from some enlisted points of view and from commanders and all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, the, I, did I loot history for it? Yeah, I looted history in a few places. Um, one of the funnier places was a story I got from a... Um, a German paratrooper, Fallschirmjäger colonel named Quant, Q-U-A-N-D-T, pretty prominent family, and he was extremely well-known in the German airborne community. I remember talking to a couple of German master sergeants in 1997, which is years later, and they said, they're like, you know Colonel Quant? Yeah, I know him, slightly, you know. I've got a copy of uh, of um, their old 100-100 manual. It's harder than hell to get a manual out of the Germans. And or organizations out of the Germans. They're just cages, hell about all that shit. I don't know how far back that goes. It probably goes at least back to trying to beat the de the disarmament commissions after the uh, Treaty of Versailles. But I, I got a copy of it from um, from Krant, and Krant told me a story about when he was a private, where his uh, you know his company commander, of course, had been a uh, you know a, this was way back. So his company commander had been a veteran of World War Two, and he and I guess this, this colonel still admired his captain from when he was a private. And uh, they shared a concern, a, a little fort with some French, and there were two wash racks, one for the Germans, one for the French. And they weren't supposed to switch back and forth. So the uh, this private this, uh, took his vehicle to the French wash rack and washed it, and um, the French complained. Right. So that uh, Friday at formation, uh, the, the company commander called the private forward in front of the company and proceeded to, to chew him out. And then he turned the formation over to the first sergeant and walked off. The first sergeant then started reading off the list of people who were going to be rewarded with four-day passes. And this guy was <laughs> the first name on the list. So that's, that's in there, actually. That, that story is in there. Um, if, you, if you do a search for crews, it's... Uh, I think it's around the time when Jan Campbell gets a uh, an all-expense-paid tour of what it's like in the legions from the inside when they invite her to take a look, mostly because they want to scare the shit out of the uh, out of the Torrens, because Carrera has been directed to. She is the Anglian uh, head of intelligence, right, Jan? Actually, a well-connected lower rung, and she's based on a real person uh. that I've never met. Well, I was told about by a uh, a Brit sergeant major friend of mine. Okay, so anyway. Mm. He fights in Pashtia. Um, he goes back to Balboa. The war's over. He's got a shitload of money. He's been charging the Federated States about two-thirds of what it would cost them for an equivalent size formation. And he can do that because he uses cheaper weapons, uh, cheaper ammunition. He, he's not worried about the great national mommy being pacified with the troops having the very latest in, um, in extremely expensive body armor. He has his own body armor. Okay, that is actually, you know, a pretty good idea, I think. Um, and, and that's it. Uh, so he's been making a huge profit. He turns that profit over. Oh, no, there's more of that.
the, the army basically, the legions basically become a political party. All the discharged uh, veterans of the legions become a political party, starship troopers, um, which is ex- referenced in the book a couple of times in, in a couple of ways. Um, they win the presidency. He sets up a Senate, which is initially extra-governmental, and he turns the money over to them. <clears throat> the senators themselves are initially handpicked by him and, and by his boss, sort of boss. But they're going to have elections, and little by little, the army's got all the money. The country doesn't have any money to speak of. So uh, the Senate, which is a representative of the, representative of the army, effectively becomes a real Senate. And little by little, the previous popular legislatures kind of shunted to the side, and they're in the process of being taken over, too, by the, uh, by the military, the discharged veterans of the military. Not a dictatorship. It's, it's like Starship Troopers, and you know, it was expressly designed to be like Starship Troopers. Mm. Because he he knows something is coming that they they need to prepare for, right? I mean, part of the reason he does this is to get uh, Balboa. In order to provide true, Balboa is under threat from from Islamic terrorists. While he's got their only army, which is private, he's got it deployed overseas or in training out on this large island, in about fifty miles away, fifty miles to the north or so. Um, so uh, the the Torrens are invited in to secure the the um, the canal, basically the transitway that runs through Balboa that for mostly for, for merchant shipping. Um, the Torrens are they started out a lot like Europeans were 400 years ago, and by now they're a lot like Europeans are now. And. Uh, they are. They don't want to leave. They don't want. To, particularly, they don't want to leave this thing to a what looks to them to be a military dictatorship, um, a dangerous military dictatorship. And he wants them gone. At the same time, there is a, a, a fleet from Earth, a little bit decrepit, but it's slowly improving under proper leadership. Um, the United Earth Peace Fleet in orbit around the planet. I think it's uh, twenty-seven, more or less warships. Uh, and there are, at a further distance out, about five transports that sort of keep things. And the United Earth Peace Fleet has a problem, which is that Balboa, is, or Balboa, the, the whole planet of Terra Nova is on the cusp of being able to get into space. They actually get into space. And if that happens, they might come looking for Earth. And if that happens, Earth is not going to the government of Earth, which is a, a caste-based well, it's the UN on steroids, really, uh, called the consensus. Um, they couldn't, they can't defend themselves. They've got to keep Terra Nova from um, from getting into space, and their fleet isn't up to the job. It's worn out and underfunded, undermanned. There are actually some ships up there with skeleton crews because they they can't be manned and they can't be maintained properly. So there's like you know small habitable areas on the ships. They like the lights on, and the ships just orbit. Um, so the the high admiral has an idea that if um, if he can or she can, because it's basically the slightly different versions of the same idea. I'll just give you the, the the last one, which is that if they can set up a system on Terra Nova that stymies itself, um, five powers on planet such that. Nobody could win a war quickly and 
everybody's jockeying for position and switching sides on a regular basis. If they can do that, then um, then they can keep Terra Nova busy for a long, long time and not in space. Uh, the problem is that the, the likely candidate for that, the Torin Union, which is very similar to the European Union, is incompetent and corrupt, and nobody really takes it all that seriously. So the, uh, the Earthers figure that they need a war, that they need the Torin Union to get in a war with somebody on their own in order to turn it into a real country. Yeah, a real country with many different cultures, but, but a real country, so that it can fill the spot of the necessary five powers that are always jockeying position and fighting with each other. And Balboa is conveniently situated to be the target of that war. And what um, what the terror, what the Earthers can provide is uh, is, is is intelligence, uh, uh, remote sensing intelligence, and stuff like that, right? That's their ace. Um, they can't really provide much in the way of arms because their arms are distinctive, and they've had issues. The Federated States they nuked two cities in the Federated States at towards the end of the Great Global War, which had taken place I, I don't know thirty or forty years prior. 40 or 50 years prior, I guess. And the Federated States hates their guts and is capable of knocking them out of space. Uh, the only reason they don't is they figure the the Earthers can nuke them back. But they're, they're as ready to nuke um, to nu- nuke the United Earth Peace Fleet as we and the Russians were ready to nuke each other in 1969 or 70 or 72 or 73. Which is to say very, you know, finger on the, on, almost on the button all the time. Um, they just hate them with a passion. Uh, so yeah, there, there's limits on the kind of support they can provide. They, they've got one thing that you, you wouldn't. It's not as obvious, but they can provide bribes in the form of rejuvenation treatments to various politicians to get them to go along with certain programs. Mm-hmm. And you know, that for a guy whose dick has died is a hell of a motivator. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's a great way to control an elite if you're a leader actually in control. Yeah. They also provide a lot of moral support. Uh, again, the only reason that the Federated States has not nuked the United Earth, Earth Police Fleet out, Peace Fleet out of existence is they believe they can be nuked back. As later comes out, if any of the nu- nuclear weapons that the United Earth Peace Fleet has, the UEPF has, work, they can't prove it. So they can't take a risk. Throwing a bomb at the Federated States, having it not work, and then having an instantaneous obliteration, you know, immediately. Now, Carrera has has himself used uh, some nuclear weapons in the past. Yeah, um, he's used one. He's, he's used one. And, he, and he's ready to use others. He, he's got more than people think. Um, he's got, I think, I want to say 21. Uh, it's 19 or 21 and he, and he, that he, he has acquired, and he used one of those. Uh, basically, he delivered it by a, a stealth auxiliary-powered glider to the family compound of the guy who uh, organized a terrorist attack that killed his wife and family. He killed... Uh, that guy was not there. He's a prisoner awaiting a sex change and then crucifixion. Um, the uh, the guy's clan is there because um, he, Carreras, have, have, he's got a little assassination branch. Um, some of them are his own people. Some of them are some Sumeris that were recruited 
Uh, one in particular, the, the one you see regularly is, is Khalid, who's a Druze. Um, and Khalid is a fine assassin. He really is a very totally ruthless assassin. Um, yeah, he comes in a pillar of fire a good deal. Khalid's all through it. He, he, he shows up, uh, I think he shows up in Carnifex. That was part one of an interview with Tom Kratman discussing A Pillar of Fire by Night. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 14 Grand Inquisitor Omand lived for the game. The chamber of argument was often filled with heated rhetoric, but it had been particularly bad lately. The recent castless uprisings were a matter of contention, and now the houses suffering from them had someone else to blame. Debates had turned into fistfights, offense had been freely given, and several duels had been fought. The usual ceremonial guard had proven insufficient to keep order and had been replaced with a few masked inquisitors, armed with truncheons and very little patience. That had gotten the politicians quieted down. Mostly. Enough of your slander. These charges are filthy lies, nothing but calumny and defamation. Chief Judge Harter Vidal shouted from the speaker's podium. This report was written either by a liar or a fool. Outrageous. Another judge rose from the stands and bellowed his response. Why do they bother to set out a podium for the opposition speaker when they usually just yelled from the audience? Omand recognized the offended as one of the minor officials from Akershan. How dare you insult my arbiter? If your arbiter didn't wish to be insulted, then perhaps he shouldn't have delivered such an incoherent screed to the committee. We wouldn't even need this special committee if your mother hadn't turned some castless pig dog into a warlord. Several other judges roared with laughter. Order! The presiding judge banged his staff against the floor. 
The laughter tapered off, but Omand counted the remaining smiles. Those would be Vidal's foes. Then he counted the frowns or looks of righteous indignation. The allies. The ones keeping their faces impassive or expressionless were the undecided that needed to be convinced one way or the other. The chief judge has not finished his rebuttal. The staff has not recognized the judge from Akershan. Now be silent. The staff struck the floor again for emphasis. The official from Akersham sat down and the great game resumed. That round had clearly gone to the offended. Omand loved to keep score. Chief Judge Harter's jaw was clenched, and he lowered his head and pretended to study his notes as his political foes in the gallery continued snickering. Omand observed that Harter's normally calm demeanor was slipping. He was an eloquent speaker, but he had a temper. Quick anger gave some men power, but it made others stupid. Oman decided that Harter fell into the latter category. The murder of Bedea had put him off his game. Harter was sweating like a man about to go beneath the torturer's knives. Oman was an expert on such things. This is an internal house matter which does not concern the capital. There is no need to involve the bureaucracy. We all grieve the loss of my mother. Mark my words, the traitor Ashok will be punished for his crimes. By dying of old age, someone in the back bellowed. The presiding staff hit the floor again before anyone had a chance to laugh. Arter scowled at the gallery, but he seemed unable to locate the speaker. The normally eloquent judge looked mad enough to declare offense and demand a duel, but only a fool did that before figuring out whose opponent's champion would be. Amand had missed the speaker's identity as well, but his men were providing security, and he had spies everywhere. So they would give him a full report about every past note and whispered conversation later. Very few things happened within the capital without Amand's knowledge. Continue, ordered the presiding judge. The demands for the traitor's immediate execution have been noted. Believe me, my fellows, no man wishes for the traitor's blood more than I. My own dear mother perished because of his evil. My heart cries for vengeance. Having always had a good sense of the dramatic, he paused to look around the room before continuing. If he'd not been so highborn, he would have made a fine actor. Yet... I would charge that these demands are nothing more than thinly-veiled schemes designed to endanger Mighty and Gruvedal, and thus the safety of my house. Some of the undecided were nodding. It seemed that Harter was hitting his stride. He was appealing to the other houses' desire to protect their own ancestor blades. Good recovery, Oman thought. Very few play the game as well as Harter. Vaucan is perched like buzzards to our west. There were several angry shouts from that section. Sarnobat are slavering wolves to the southeast. More outraged cries, but the staff didn't fall. Armand was curious what favors Harter had plied the presiding judge with to let Harter get away with such inflammatory speech. They say they demand justice. 
But it isn't justice they seek. It is advantage. They would risk Angruvadal to weaken their neighbor. Harter stared directly at the biggest group of undecided judges. And they would do the same to you. The Vokan and Sarnabat delegations began loudly booing. Now the staff came down, along with the demands for silence. A scuffle broke out in one aisle, but before it could get out of hand, one of Oman's inquisitors bashed an arbiter with a club and dragged him from the room by the beard. That shut them up. Order! Oman was sitting in the roped-off section, reserved for important guests who had no vote, but who were of high enough status to attend various committee meetings if they wished. The only other occupant today was the newly promoted Lord Protector. It was always hard to guess a Protector's age, since to a courtly man they all looked like leather that had been left out in the sun too long. But he was still a handsome sort, provided you didn't mind scars. He had a reputation for being intriguing and mysterious to the courtly ladies, but Amand had no need to guess about anything because he knew everything there was to know about this man. He was the firstborn of a house that no longer existed, the son of a disgraced bearer, and the Inquisition spy said that he had been a close friend of the fallen protector. Amand was curious to see how easily he would be provoked, so he leaned over and whispered, your order has been strangely silent on this controversy. What is your opinion on the matter? We form no opinions. An opinion will be issued to us. The report said that this newly promoted Lord Protector could be rather charming when he wanted, so the fact he was only coldly polite to a man told him how he felt about the Inquisition. Then we will fulfill our duty. Of course you will. You are Devadas. He extended his hand in the southern tradition of greeting that he'd been told the Lord Protector favored. It is a pleasure to finally meet you in person. We've corresponded by letter before. About that peculiar situation your order faced a few years ago. The order appreciated your discretion. Devadas didn't shake his hand. I am... I know who you are, Inquisitor. The mask fools no one. They aren't necessarily meant to be disguises, Protector. I'm familiar with the concept of intimidation, only we don't hide our faces. Devadas pretended to watch the bickering politicians. Why are you here? Shouldn't you be off burning witches, or is the committee filled with traitors? You would be surprised. But Amand only chuckled, as if that was a good-humored jibe between peers. It pained me to turn down your request to investigate Chief Judge Harter. His word outweighs that of an untouchable, even one accomplished enough to pretend to be a whole man for twenty years. And Harter says that he had no knowledge of his mother's fraud. However, I assure you, the Inquisition will keep an eye on him. Devadas glowered in silence. Amand asked a question that he already knew the answer to. So, did you know the Fallen? This black-hearted Ashok? 
Yes. Devadas didn't elaborate further. Who would blame him? There was nothing but shame in declaring that you'd once been friends with the most infamous criminal in the world. Omand knew that the Lord Protector had recently traveled all the way to Vidal to speak to the traitor in his prison cell, and though he wished he knew what had been said there, he couldn't know all the secrets. Omand waved one hand toward the intricate carvings and colorful murals that decorated the vast and beautiful Chamber of Argument. No expense had been spared to decorate such an important place. So what do you think of the capital so far? It's hot, Devadas muttered. A beautiful young woman had approached one of the speaker's podiums during the commotion. The colorful scarves told everyone that she was from House Zaga. Despite her age, she wore the insignia of a high-status arbiter, so most of the judges would probably think she'd either married well or slept with the right thakur. Oman knew that this one actually impressed some very powerful people with her keen intellect and earned her appointment through cunning. The Desert House hadn't taken a stand one way or the other yet, so most of the gallery was actually paying attention. The staff gave her the floor, and when she presented, she had the melodic voice of a songbird. I believe we all agree the fallen protector deserves the dishonorable death of a criminal, but his sword, and by extension, House Vidal, do not deserve to be punished. The loss of an ancestor blade weakens us all and leaves all of us more vulnerable to the demons. There were shouts of agreement from Vidal's allies. What is your name, reasonable arbiter? Harta asked with a smile. Archer Zati Dasaga, Order of Census and Taxation. However, the castless uprisings are being spurred on by rumors about this Ashok. The castless take courage from his murderous rampage. They speak of an untouchable, armed with the most powerful magic, who has slaughtered whole men and who still lives to spite us. As long as he lives, Ashok inspires them to more rebellion and increased violence. As she continued, Carter's smile slowly died. The fallen protector has become a rallying cry for the criminal underclass. The report is exaggerated. I do not speak about the Akashan report. This unrest is spreading. I've seen it in my house's lands with my own eyes. There was an uncomfortable rumble throughout the entire room. Everyone had occasional problems with their non-people, but it was uncouth to admit it in a public forum. The Akashan delegation had several villages sacked and officials murdered by fortress magic before they'd swallowed their pride enough to request witch hunters from the Inquisition. It had taken a false prophet stirring up a full-on rebellion for them to accept the shame of needing the capital's help to control their non-people. Freely admitting to unrest in Zaga was a curious development. Everyone was paying attention now. The non-people are increasing in boldness and depravity. Their degenerate nature is idle, but quick to riot 
And now all of them are whispering about the lawbreaker in Vidal. Your inability to detect this fraud has endangered us all. Arta was in a difficult position. He could attack Atria as a liar, but he needed Zaga's votes and couldn't risk giving offense. Omand enjoyed watching him squirm. He suspected that Harta had known about Bedea's plot to conceal the Blades choosing a castless boy all along. And, given an excuse, he'd love to torture a confession out of the pretentious little fop. But even Omand had to tread carefully about charging chief judges with crimes. He noticed that Lord Protector Devadas was also studying the chief judge with barely concealed disgust. Interesting. Before Harter could formulate a response, the murmuring had died down and Atria resumed speaking. Our houses suffer because of the sickness in Vidal, but we are all infected. Do not blame Great House Vidal or their honorable leadership for being victimized by this castless scheme. No one doubts Ashok must be dealt with. When a cancerous rot is found, a surgeon doesn't leave it alone and allow it to spread. But rather, the disease is excised immediately for the good of the entire body. No one doubts Ashok must pay, and for now he is quarantined. But this underlying sickness must be destroyed. Let us allow the surgeon to do it in the manner that is least likely to kill the patient. Ashok is a symptom. He is not the disease. We would treat this symptom, but the body remains sick. The real disease is the castless. She's good. And the Grand Inquisitor wasn't easily impressed. His allies had chosen wisely. That is not the current topic, the presiding judge warned. On the contrary, it was a castless who stole an honor he did not deserve and brought shame to one of the capital's oldest and most prestigious orders. If the protectors of our law can be so easily deceived, are we not all vulnerable? Amand glanced over at Devadas to see his reaction to the slander of his order. The protector was leaning forward on his seat, knuckles pressed to his mouth, bitter, angry, yet apprehensive at the same time. The protectors were politically vulnerable right now, and Devadas knew it. And that is why the Inquisition wears masks. Let us be honest with ourselves. Black-hearted Ashok, no matter how deadly the magic he bears, is but one man, and he has already turned himself in to the authorities. The real danger is the non-people he has inspired. If there were no non-people to riot and disturb the peace, then he would be nothing more than another common criminal. And none of us would care what Vidal decided to do with him. The castless are an infestation, a plague. They consume our resources and give nothing in return. They are barely more than wild animals, savage and uncontrollable. I say, 
We have tolerated them long enough. Parter seemed glad for this diversion. Indeed, they're foul creatures, but the law determines the castes. There have always been untouchables, and we're required to allow them to live. That was before one of them stole a sacred ancestor blade, exclaimed a regulator from Harbin. Oman smiled behind his mask. That man might have been high status, but he'd been bought and paid for as surely as any slave. Oman had commanded him to agitate on this topic, and his timing was impeccable. Archer speaks with wisdom. What would you have us do? shouted another judge from the opposite side of the gallery. There are millions of them. Millions of mouths to feed, responded Oman's plant. Kill the locusts and be done with it. Drive them all into the sea like we did with the demons, said a woman sitting off to Oman's side. Let's see if they float. Why not? Archer asked. No good comes from the castless. We're already allowed some measure of population control, and Thakurs can execute them as necessary to maintain order. But why not dispose of them once and for all? Amand carefully studied the council. No one was fool enough to speak up for the lives of the untouchables, but they were still valuable assets, especially in the houses that required vast amounts of manual labor. The Vokan and Sarnobat delegation seemed angry that the subject had been changed away from harming their powerful neighbor. The rest knew this would go nowhere. The topic of exterminating the untouchables came up every so often, but that was a lot of work. The castless are property, are they not? If they are property, then why are we not allowed to do with them as we please? The law wouldn't require us to keep a pet dog that had turned rabid. Another false prophet has arisen in the South, and his meddling has disrupted the flow of trade. We are all aware of the law as it stands, but times have changed. We are a nation of industry now, and the castless are no longer necessary. The lowest of the workers can take on their vital duties. There were a few token representatives of the second and third castes seated in the very back of the chamber of argument. Omand carefully studied the workers' faces. These were wealthy among their kind, but they were ants here. They didn't look happy at the idea of their people handling sewage, carcasses, and other unpleasant things, but it wasn't like these particular quality individuals were in any danger of getting their own hands dirty. They'd simply create a new division for their undesirables and obligate them to the work. Of far more interest to a man, however, were the faces of the warrior caste's representatives, and they had sent no fools. Those assigned to observe the chamber of argument were usually experienced commanders, crippled in battle and no longer able to fight, but still sharp and not easily riled. They hadn't grown up playing the game, but they were good at thinking fast and keeping their emotions in check. Exterminating the castless would be their caste's responsibility, and it would be a huge undertaking. Omand needed their support, but the warriors just sat there, straight-backed, 
focused and stern. Hard to tell. I officially propose destroying all of the untouchables, Archer said, advocating the death of millions about as dispassionately as discussing the weather. Several others shouted their agreement, making the proposal official. A proposal has been put forward. The presiding judge hit his staff on the floor. You raise interesting questions, Arbiter Artya, but there are thousands of pages of regulations pertaining to the mandatory continuation of the castless bloodlines and the dispensation of property. The committee has not done sufficient research on this point of law to discuss it at this time. We must understand why these regulations exist, and if they are open to interpretation or amendment. The scribes and legal experts sitting in the rows behind the presiding judge began to whisper among themselves. Oh, how they do love a good legal question. I hereby obligate the order of archivists to research this topic and prepare a report. Oman found it satisfying that the judge picked the archivists and not the historian order, but he had made preparations either way. That report would say exactly what he wanted it to say. If it is acceptable to both the offender and the offended, the committee will reconvene on this topic in 60 days. Considering the bloated, ponderous nature of the bureaucracy, Amanda would be surprised if they finished their report by then, but Harter and the representative from Akershan were both eager to agree. It bought Vidal more time to figure out how to deal with their shameful prisoner, and Akershan would be delighted to have their rebellion put down once and for all. Once word trickled down through the castes that the capital was thinking about cracking down on all the untouchables because of the actions of their violent few, the non-people would silence their own troublemakers, as they always did. Idiots, Devadas muttered to himself. What's that, Lord Protector? Nothing. A man smiled beneath his mask. Surely Devadas was marveling about how soft-palmed bureaucrats could so flippantly discuss slaughter on this scale, when most of them had never even killed their own dinner. Welcome to the capital, Lord Protector. The meeting was adjourned, so all the important people could return to swindling, bribing, coercing, seducing, and blackmailing each other. The capital rarely changed. There were minor shifts in the balance of power, and houses came and went. But for hundreds of years, things had stayed basically the same. They all knew Artya's proposal would go nowhere because extreme changes to the law damaged their comfortable entropy. And annihilating millions, even if they were wretched non-people, was rather extreme. The wind and sand would erode the city walls away before this august body committed to anything so drastic. Unless, of course, they had no choice. Omand was extremely pleased. The game had gone well for him today.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the smoky remains of imaginary realms of socialist dystopias that have eaten themselves from within alive gathered into an enormous scented candle that gives the whole house that holiday feel. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits to Tom Crapman, author of A Pillar of Fire by Night. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 